Quando sono solo sono arrisonte mancano le parole Si lo so che non c'è luce in una stanza quando manca sole Se non ci sei tu con me we're recording right now hello welcome to time to say goodbye andy is going to sound a little bit loud today but we can adjust it um, as you can tell andy and tammy are here the crew is back hey everyone um, it's been a while yeah you don't you don't look that loud in the <laughs> waveform thing i think we're gonna be okay all right, so it is the 25th of April. You'll be listening to this on the 26th of April. So please forgive us if anything has happened in the last 24 hours, as always. Um, now, this has never happened in the history of our show, has it? Not what? really, that we've had breaking news. Oh, um, I mean, we've had two years of episodes. I feel like we talked about something <laughs> that happened like, immediately. <laughs> I remember uh, when I first wrote a piece for the New York Times Magazine, you know, it was this big deal for me, obviously, you know, I felt like I had sort of leveled up and I walked into the office and that week everybody was in a panic. I had never been inside the Times building before. Right. And so I went up to the sixth floor. That's where the magazine used to be. And um, everyone was like panicking and I was trying to figure out why they were panicking. And it was because they were covering, publishing this cover story about the Oklahoma City Thunder that Sam Anderson had written that was part of his great book, right? Yeah. And the week that the Sam cover came Anderson. out is when James Harden got traded. <laughs> so they had, this, they had this cover of, of uh, you know, James yeah. Harden, Russell Westbrook, and Kevin Durant, and um, James Harden had just been traded, right? And so the they whole had New York the, Times was in panic over the Harden trade. No, not the whole New York Times, but the magazine was obviously this was, like... This was a big deal in basketball? It was a big uh, it was a big, yeah, it was. Well, yeah. It was I barely know what you guys are talking about. But it was mostly okay. just that they, you know, because the magazine has to publish so yeah. early because of lead time to get everything mm -hmm. in print, that this was like the worst uh, amount of time. Yeah. Now, you know, in the end, it didn't really matter because Sam's book and his piece most more about Oklahoma City, right? But um, okay, in my young mind, I was like, wow, publishing is intense. You're like, <laughs> this is so exciting, journalism. <laughs> Yeah. And now it's all yeah. dead to you. Well, no, it's not. It's fine. But I was excitement I, yeah, is gone. I was like, wow. Oh, you mean in my in my heart? Yeah. Yes, true. I, Your I thought you meant heart. Like, I thought you meant the industry. I was like, no, I think the industry's okay. No. You know, but yeah, my, my, <laughs> that my that feeling of like, oh, this is so cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's not quite there anymore. But you know what? I'm very excited <laughs> about my own projects, right? And um, all right, so today we're going to talk about a few things. What was the first thing we were going to talk about at the beginning? The, the breaking news of Twitter, right? Oh, yeah. Okay, so <laughs> Elon Musk ha is, uh, it seems like Elon Musk is actually, like, this might happen, right? Now, it seemed like last week, Elon Musk's bid to buy Twitter for like $43.5 billion or whatever it is. Like, people are kind of laughing about it, and they're like theorizing that Twitter was trying to put a poison pill in there, right? Um they were also yeah. trying to figure out uh, if like Elon Musk even really wanted to buy Twitter, right? Or if it was serious and people are saying, oh, it's not serious because Elon Musk is just trying to get attention for Elon Musk. Mm -hmm. But today it really does seem like this is something that's going to happen. I, the, I, I have been, the only way I've been following this whole thing is, this. do you read Matt Levine? Oh, I think Matt no. Levine's like one of the best writers, I think, or um, on business 
okay. and probably the best like blog. He's like the closest that comes to like actual blogging. He's written like 10 pieces about Elon Musk and Twitter. He writes every single day, wow. I think, about it. It's really good. Okay. <laughs> so um, Matt Levine seems to be saying this morning, you know, I just got this in my uh, inbox that like, you know, it seems like this is very possible at this point. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about this? Like people are, you know, I, I feel like people freaked out when the news first came out and now they're just kind of like realizing that they're not going to change their behavior at all, you know? Yeah. Um, but the or interesting thing... Yeah that's going to happen is that like you know donald trump is going to be back on twitter soon <laughs> if this happens <laughs> you know? like it all it's it really is going to feel I didn't like think about that right it's going to feel like um you know like one of those movies i'm trying to think about like a movie where like there's a vault you know in ghostbusters when like the vault breaks open and all the uh, like all the ghosts come flying out, <laughs> it's gonna be exactly like. That. Oh my god! Um, I don't know. What are our thoughts on this? Is the was the main critique that this is a democracy problem? I guess my question is like, could Twitter get worse? I mean, you just mentioned one way in which it could with Trump, but it's not yeah. as though it's some democratic institution that we need to protect from the evils of Elon Musk. I guess was my first reaction. But right. it's basically like the number one way that certain industries talk to each other, right? <clears throat> um, and and interface yes. with the public. Like no, it's Twitter. very important. I guess I just yeah. I just like don't know how much worse it could get under Musk. Right. I mean, is the the main difference is they won't he'll unkick off un- unban Trump and then also unban I guess like COVID misinformation and some other stuff like that. I don't know about COVID misinformation, but I think that basically it'll just be like everybody gets unbanned and it's freewheeling. Right. Right. Space again. Right. And that, um, because of Musk's like ideological orientation, we're just right. making predictions, not because of certain promises he's made. Yeah. We're right. just predicting, I guess. Yeah. Right. But every time I'm on Twitter, I, it's, it starts doing that algorithm thing where it's like the most popular tweets. I and know. I switch it back to like newest, but like I've, I never switch it and it's always going back to the most popular, you know? So yeah. it is, it does already at, the, at this point yeah. seem like it's just like a curated Facebook feed more than totally sort of. Un- unfiltered stream of information that it's supposed to be right uh you think that i don't know it i mine stays on latest but oh, maybe i'm just like the, mine okay. doesn't i have yeah. the same experience that andy does where i have to keep switching it and even then i don't really trust that it is <laughs> okay well let me let me give you my twitter takes here like um one and two. All right. And I want you to respond to them. The first is that I generally don't think it matters at all. And that's a very boring cake, right? Like whether or not like, uh, you know, the successor to Jack Dorsey, whose name I don't even know right now, is running Twitter. Or Elon Musk is running Twitter. Right. But I do think that it will having Trump back on there will change the way in which journalists respond and the media responds to Trump. Right. Because the journalism, as you said, Andy, is one of these industries that is entirely related, you know, uh, dependent on Twitter. Right. The two top industries that are relied on Twitter. Number one is journalists and number two is NBA fans. Right. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Number three is like NFTs, you know. Yeah. For like, I mean, if the academic industry was as large as NBA fans or NFTs or journalism, then I would say so. But, you know, it's a relatively marginal field still. (laughs) But like, um, they uh i think that the i just think that everything is gonna be reactive to trump tweets again right like i mean he was the he was the center he was like the center of gravity upon which that entire platform spun for six years and uh now that he's gone right it's very different i would say it argue in some ways it's worse 
right? Like, I mean, I don't know what anyone is talking wow. about at any point. Huh? Oh, yeah, I see. In that sense, I know my life is so much better. Really? Your life's better? Why? Yeah. Because people aren't <laughs> yelling sure. at Trump anymore. Are these related to each For other? Sure. Or are they separate? Oh. I mean, I, I ignored Trump. Wait, wait, Tammy, Trump. why is it better? Like, you would rather, you know, read like why two. Why is Twitter better without Trump? Yeah, you'd rather read like two academics arguing with, with each other for like oh, six hours. Oh, hell yeah, hours. Jay. Okay. <laughs> then watching, <laughs> then watch like Ed, yeah. like Kras, Krasenstein twins, like be like, sir, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> Where are your Absolutely. tax returns? A thousand <laughs> times I'd rather see Twitter historians fighting. <laughs> I, I, I prefer it's the so latter. It's so much less stress honest. for me. <laughs> No, it's much more stress for me because because like the Krasenstein twins and stuff like that just be like, sir, you know, like, um, what about Melania? You know, and they like post like some racy photo of Melania and you're just like, these oh people God. are the worst people in the world outside of Trump, you know, um, like, I don't know. That's just fair, like, I don't know who those people are. And I spent a lot that's of true. time on there. That's than true. But that's true. my life has much improved. I, okay. I mean, I Andy, what about you? Like. If he were back on, could he like? Is that good for his presidential run? And I think the answer is probably right. yes. And that's, oh, for sure, that's, it's that's good for right. his presidential. Like, that is run. the thing that matters, not like whether we're annoyed. But yeah. but I yeah. think I'm coming from this perspective that he's going to win anyway. You know, so it doesn't matter. Mm, I don't like know. I, Maybe I'm, I'm in denial, but I feel really. like anything could happen. Still, it's was it two years from now? Yeah, yeah. There's plenty of time. Yeah, you're like uh, Kevin Garnett here. Anything is possible. <laughs> anything is possible. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, it's so hard to predict. These. I mean, it doesn't look good yeah. for sure. Okay, that's all I want. It doesn't look good, right? <laughs> like yeah. even with him off Twitter, it doesn't look good, right? And yeah. so, do you think I that him know. being back on Twitter is going to make it look worse? But I mean, I, him, I can see that. Yeah. Maybe being off Twitter helped him, right? Because he, you know, I mean, maybe this is oh, you think the wrong assumption that when he says something stupid, it hurts him and it actually helps him. But, you know, like maybe people forgot how horrible he was and they were talking themselves back into him. Um, yeah, I, I kind of I buy that, so. Andy, because have you his press releases now, you know, the ones that he like puts out on his letterhead and go around <laughs> Twitter. Mm-hmm. They're like legitimately like, I'm sorry to say this, but they're like legitimately funny. Like the yeah, one sure. that he wrote about when he hit a hole in one, you know, and he put out a <laughs> press release. Like that was legitimately hilarious. I know. <laughs> you know. I was like, I think maybe, maybe his ideal form is uh-huh. not actually Twitter, even though obviously he was a master of Twitter. But maybe yeah. his ideal form is like the 200 word press release where he's just like <laughs> rambling about, yeah, about something, and in the end he just puts a joke in there. You know, it's probably also the case that if he wins, it's not because of Twitter; it's because like Build Back Better never happened, and sure. Biden yeah. didn't right. do anything. Right? right. Wait, so. we're not supposed to say that stuff anymore. The new, <laughs> the new, the new left consensus is that, um, you know, we have Biden's to. Great. Yeah, well, you can't blame America or our side for anything anymore, like, which I don't know. I, I don't even think is a bad idea. All right, Tammy. Um, I don't know. I, that's enough about Twitter. I don't really I don't I think that our conclusion is all that it doesn't matter. Right. Like, who cares? Uh, yeah, it's like one percent. It of probably people doesn't matter. That. It is bad to have billionaires own lots of things. Yeah. Right. It's bad to have the same dudes own lots of things, which is just like a good principle. But what is the like, what is why is it worth so much money if they don't like, is it they going to have ads or they I guess there already are ads. But I mean, I mean, a lot of people do use Twitter. Right. I mean, it's not as big as like other things, but but is there value to having like 
we're going to see the experience get much worse with like ads everywhere. And Oh, I don't think so. I mean, I think it's a data mine mostly, I would think. Oh yeah. Yeah. And also like, uh, there is, what is the intrinsic value of having a platform in which the world's news media is completely captivated by, you know, Mm -hmm. um, there is some value to that, right? I mean, think For about sure, it. Like, yeah. what would like Adrian Wojnarowski be without Twitter, right? Like, so yeah. um, Asian, but, I don't know how much money he makes from ESPN, but it's a lot, right? And so you have entire news economies that are built on this platform. Now, whether or not that that can be directly monetized immediately is questionable. But, you know, the the fact itself is worth something. I don't know. At we least could have like think. tweets sponsored by companies, like time to psych. Time to say goodbye tweets sponsored by a specific company. <laughs> Wait, what? There is yeah. a lot of sponsored content. Like, on like Jersey sponsors. And there is. There's promoted yeah. content. There's all yeah. this stuff. I mean, I don't know how much money they're ever going to make from something like Twitter Blue or something like that, right? Like, <laughs> oh, not, yeah. It's like the subscription. Oh, have you tried these social groups buy? thing that just popped up last no. week or whatever? No. It's just I pointless. Know. I know. The okay. all, it seems like none of the new features have really taken, but yeah. The monetizing is a little funky. I agree. I don't understand business well enough to know these things. I just know that I, I like. I don't really care if Trump comes back on Twitter. Um, like yeah. I, I do think it'll be. I don't know. Maybe I'm too much of a nihilist at this point, but I just think like it'll. He was always going to come back at some point anyway, right? Sure. And starting very soon, he's going to be the center person in all of our lives. Again, oh you know, okay. and there's no way to deny that. I was able to kind of ignore him, but maybe as journalists and who you all follow, he is the center and maybe outside of, you know, not to talk about bubbles or whatever, but I don't know if it's the center of everyone's life on that. On okay. That but form. ignoring Trump is the biggest, is like the most insular bubble, right? You remember like there was that article was in the New York Times about that him. guy who like was like, I'm just going to turn the news off for four years. <laughs> Uh -huh. that? No, oh, uh, it was pretty good actually. I liked the article. I was this guy was just like, I'm just not going to look at TV for four years, right. you know. Um, I don't know. That seems <laughs> oh like God. a that seems somewhat of like a impossibility, right? And if you feel implicated at all by the fact that this guy yeah. is president, um, but whatever, you know. I, I, what I'm saying is, check your privilege, Andy. All right, <laughs> <laughs> just mute him. It's fine. <laughs> muting him is free. Um, all right. Related. Let's talk to about our first. Uh, let's talk about our first actual topic today, which is, um, you know, like Jamel Bowie wrote this uh, newsletter, and uh, you know, I don't know, it inspired some Twitter fight on the left that I don't actually care about, that I thought was silly, you know. But I thought that Jamel's central argument was very interesting. It's one that I want to talk about, which is that basically, at this point, the left has to, and progressives, Democrats, everybody needs to fight this culture war, right? Like that. At some point, like maybe it was worth ignoring somebody like Chris Rufo and like all the CRT stuff and like all of the agitation and just say, I'm not going to give this the time of day because that's what they want, right? They want us to respond. They want us to uh, have to defend things that we shouldn't have to defend, right? Like so for and this is a very this is a very sort of fraught conversation, right? But like, look, let's say that like one teacher like this is the whole libs of TikTok thing, right? Like where it's like, okay, some of the stuff that's on libs of TikTok, when you watch it, like some of it I watch and I'm like, this is a perfectly nice and thoughtful and and like empathetic human being that's being ripped apart by like, you know, and being like harassed and, and abused by this, by, by this account. 
And then some of the stuff on there, you're just like, wow, I, you know, like, I wish that this person hadn't said this thing publicly because it makes, it makes some other causes look bad. Right. Wait, but, what is that, like, Jay? Libs of yeah. TikTok. Can you just explain real quick? Libs of, you guys don't like, no, okay. I'm Libs of TikTok. TikTok is a Twitter account that like collects what they think are like crazy liberals <laughs> right. saying crazy things. And most of it surrounds LGBTQ and like trans issues. Right. Okay. And it's used as a. Oh, it's a conservative of, who's collecting these. Right, right. And gotcha, like that gotcha. person was like the identity of that person was revealed by Taylor Lorenz. Um, and that's why Taylor Lorenz mm -hmm. was all over the your Twitter feeds a few days ago or last week. Right. Because everybody was I don't know, you know, it was another Taylor Lorenz drama where but you know, Taylor of course is yeah, correct in saying that like uh, you know, it is newsworthy to find if the identity of the person who is running this massive account is public and she finds the public identification of this person right then right. it's newsworthy right like right, right, it's right, not right. a question sure, sure, sure. like yeah there's no question about that um but you know everybody responded by saying like oh i thought you're anti -do anyway it was stupid i don't want to talk about the yeah, twitter thing but yeah. like the uh you know so why like i think the central question for a while was like okay if the right brings up somebody like this right who like whose views do not align with anybody, right? Um, on the progressive side, right? Like people, um, should we have to go in and say, no, I defend this, or should we have to give it the time of day, right? Now that's uh, intensified quite a bit, right? Like how do you, it's basically it's being like, how do you respond to a bad faith attack, right? Like how do you respond to Ted Cruz asking Katanji Brown Jackson, like, you know, um, are babies racist, you know, like, <laughs> do you have critical race theory at Georgetown oh, day school? Like, like all this sort of like, you know, like how do you respond to that? Right. Like, and I think we agreed when we did the show that like Tanji Brown Jackson's response of just saying, uh, what are you talking about was right. appropriate. Right? right. Right. So, um, since, you know, that I think Jamel's argument was basically that like, uh, what this is now is very clear, right? Like what Christopher Rufo was doing is very clear he is trying to fight against the very idea of public education right he's trying to curtail public goods in a way and he's doing it through the culture war and that democrats really at this point have to fight back right because um there are laws that are being passed in several states that affirm what rufo is saying that these laws are going to be used to shut down t uh, public schools when used to like sort of um you know, fight teachers unions, right? That's a huge thing that Rufo wants to do. And that like, we can't just ignore it anymore. So what do you guys think about yeah. this? I, I found I found his argument fairly convincing. And it's something that I've been thinking about. He was obviously also um, thinking about our previous history with anti communism, you know, who act and right. in the McCarthy era, as you know, these are ways of rooting out elements that are for progressive ideals, basically, right? Or for socialist ideals. I mean, I think we can probably argue at the edges of it. Like, for instance, I was thinking about how during HUAC, um, you know, the culture industry was also a very big target that doesn't necessarily interact with like public Hollywood, goods, right? right? Like Hollywood, right? And other like leftist actors in there. And sure, right. that was somewhat like the communists there were connected to unions and other and things like that. But that wasn't necessarily an attack on public goods as such. Um, I think there sometimes are sort of like, you know, there can also be direct attacks on cultural production, intellectual production that are, is also part of this. But yeah, I mean, I do think that a lot of the stuff going on with CRT, going on with 
trying to out gay people and all this stuff is really trying to just undermine the authority of public figures. Yeah. Right. Right. Andy, what about you? So I think I, I had a lot of thoughts about this. At a very basic level, I think he's correct that obviously you can't do nothing. Um, I think the question that arises is like, what is the response? And if uh, the anti-CRT stuff or the or the sort of like quote unquote don't say gay stuff is somehow about undermining like political, economic, social welfare stuff, is there a way to respond to it that actually connects the dots between quote unquote identity groups mm-hmm. and the underlying political structure? Because my thing is, I think a lot of the way this gets discussed and I kind of read across the coverage in the, in the times as well, Michelle Goldberg's piece is in a way that kind of disconnects it. Um, and that is kind of my beef with like a lot of this liberal stuff, which is it's not, they, they kind of take the terrain or stay on the terrain of this is about identity. This is about discrimination, recognition of individual groups and so on, which is good, but it's also, you know, it, it is also compatible with the conservative political economic framework, which is to say, you could say, respect gay rights, respect, uh, you know, racial minority, blah, blah, blah. But I'm also okay with privatization of schools and privatization right. of resources, right? And so Jamel does a good job saying that these are connected, but I don't think he ends by saying like, well, what does, what does it mean to actually win the culture war? Right, well, moment? that's something, I agree yeah. with that. Like, um, But it's not his, I will say it's not his job. Sure, yeah. You know, I say this as somebody who has roughly a similar job to Jim Miles, which, and I get many emails when <laughs> defending I write the something columnist. like this. Yeah. No, I'm not defending the columnist. I'm just saying that like, it's a very common thing where I get where somebody's like, like you just right. rambled around for a while and you didn't right. tell us what to do. And I was like, <laughs> my job is not to tell you what right. to do only, right, right. you know, sometimes it is, you know, right. but sometimes it is to <laughs> frame a question in a different type of way, which is right. what he was doing, which is like, you don't have to think of this just as being a fight for X right, you know, right. or yeah. a defense of X person's right to do this or a defense of books, right? Like, because um, there is sort of a proportion question that comes into play there, which is just like, okay, one school district has like banned a bunch of books and that school district looks crazy, you know? But let's be honest, like most school districts in America, I would say 99% of school districts in America are not banning these books, right? But, you know, there is a larger question, which is when legislatures start passing vague laws Right, that are centered around these types of freakouts, and those laws are clearly aimed at sort of gutting public education, public goods. Then, yeah, yeah. then you have to sort of fight it. But right. I don't know. Right. The, the, that's the question I wanted to ask Tammy, you specifically. Also, Andy, I don't know. I don't know why I said specifically. <laughs> I know, it's not like, me, just Tammy. Yeah. yeah, in my head, it's like, well, you know, um, I <laughs> yeah, just looking at the Zoom screen. I was just looking at the Zoom screen. I just have like. <laughs> verbal picks at this point you know <laughs> anyway tammy tammy box um what what do you think should how do you think people should fight this culture war because something i actually don't know the answer to you know i think about it all the time right like like how do you fight a chris rufo right like yeah. um like do I you mean, have to defend everything these, it's true i was curious in these districts where teachers and librarians are specifically under attack like how the unions have been handling some of this stuff because ultimately some of this stuff are is like sort of basic worker issues and i think i feel like i'm just saying the same thing i always say just what are the unions doing just follow what the unions are doing but it but on some level it really is a sort of like personnel or workers rights issue and it's possible that if those people organize in a savvy way they could you know basically make that connection, essentially say that this is like an individual rights issue here, but it actually connects to this entire community 
you know, right to education. Um, I think to me, like that would be a very positive framing um, because those are the people who are ultimately kind of fighting this on a daily basis, having their jobs and their, their sort of lesson plans affected. Right. Right. Interfering. Andy, what about you? You specifically, um, Andy. <laughs> yeah. You. Well, I have the Andy response, which is like a little bit more ivy, ivory tower, right? But, but like the, these issues. We're, we're, we're like conforming. We've I now all exactly. just become like stereotypes. We're playing we've, we've, become par- we've become parodies yeah. of ourselves. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> so bad. Yeah. Okay, really Andy, what's, what, what's, what's, a pers- what's a view? The ivory tower ivory perspective tower. is like, <laughs> I think this, there's a lot, because this stuff comes up a lot with like nationalism, racism debates in the academy and i think this idea that it's basically being framed as a scapegoat or a moral panic like it's really about this but they're going to use this to distract you and that's kind of how the times is covering it and i think that's that raises a lot i I think that's uh there's a lot of weaknesses with that right like for one thing like why this group why not you know just people from new zealand or you know eskimos like why why any group in particular (laughs) that doesn't really get answered in these kind of scapegoat theories, which are kind of assumed that one thing has nothing to do with the other thing. Right. right. And so I think the best way to actually approach it is to, I don't know about like PR and f- public framing. I'm not like a political strategist or anything, but intellectually, I think it makes a lot more sense to actually confront how are these things interrelated. Um, and the thing that came up in my mind reading this was there's a book that is quite popular among academics and non-academics called Family Values by Melinda Cooper talking about oh, yeah. um, the sort of uh, uh, neoconservatism in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, sort of like the Reagan-Bush moment, and how that was actually complicit with uh, you know, gutting the welfare state and austerity. And the basic thesis is you know, there's, there's a freak out about you know, AIDS, there's a freak out about the welfare state, and uh, that at the, at the same time that the government is basically vanishing and shrinking back all of its responsibilities like welfare and public education, they are putting the onus on traditional families. And so there's this real emphasis upon traditional nuclear families and any threat to traditional nuclear families. um, So it could be, you know, like gay, trans, like non-traditional, like family structures. It was also like part of this moment of like the Moynihan report attacking black culture for having a culture of poverty, you know, single, single mothers and so on. So I think, kind of figuring out that sort of internal connection between why are these stereotypes, racist attacks, et cetera, so resonant with people's, with some like larger political economic, economic project makes it a lot more convincing. Um, and, and that might also help like the pushback against it, which is to say, you're not really mad about us. What you really want is an austerity. I mean, and he's, you know, Rufo says this in the interviews, right? What you really want is to make families shoulder the burden that governments should do to feed us, to give us health care, to give us welfare, or you know, right. give us you right. know, wages and so on. Um, and I think that that makes more sense. And, you know, like we talked about this, I think on, on the show several times, right? Like stereotypes against XYZ group, against Asians, against black people, right? There's a historical material basis to these stereotypes that I'm just completely made up. Um, and so, which isn't just, and I, I don't think people are afraid if you actually explore the stereotypes, you know, there's like, well, are you going Amy wax on us, right? Yeah, now? exactly. Well, you're like, you're afraid you're going to validate them. Like, you know how Asians are in science all the time, you know, that kind of thing. But, but, um, and I think that's probably These why Taiwanese people yeah, exactly. who came in the fifties and sixties, they're all rich people from China who didn't yeah. want their money stolen. And then they hey. moved out to the United States to all become doctors. Yeah. You know? Hey, you're like, well, sounds, that's kind of true. Yeah. No, it sounds pretty good to me. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think that is why the conversation though is so generalized. 
you know, in, in the coverage, which is like, you don't want to actually entertain the far right's um, like nitty gritty logic right. for why this group or right. that group. Um, so I was, you know, if I was just reading about this before the show started. I didn't get a chance to look even deeper, but I'm sure if you watch like the 90 minute Tucker Carlson segment, he would actually lay out these things, you know, uh, in depth in a way that just like a, a AP article doesn't have the time to do or won't, or won't do right because they're afraid right. of legitimizing these ideas but that's my that's my that's my guess right that th- these particular groups are being targeted not just because of some generic xenophobia but because there's mileage there um as part of this sort of austerity anti-working class political mission right the family part is very important actually raihan um was interviewed for an article <laughs> by the times about rufo it's attacks on LGBTQ people. And he said, well, I think that, you know, this is more about the way that families can choose things, right? Which is the same thing that was said about this anti-CRT stuff. It's like, well, families should be able to choose what their kids learn in school. Um, And the family focus is very real, right? And it's a very powerful political tool that the right weaponizes in ways that the left does not Right. Um, the left could. And a lot. some of this is, bec- I would say, is because of failure of democratic messaging. Right. Like, I mean, like the child tax, the, ch- uh, the child credit. Right. Um, like that could have really been yeah, a way totally. to talk about families. Right. But they didn't. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's the like, thing. I, people I, need help. I and feel like, like Bert, I think actually did that pretty well. He would always right. talk about struggling families, which is a resonant message. But that's that seems to have gone away quite a bit right from the democratic messaging, um, which is unfortunate because it is the way to fight. Like if we're thinking prescriptively at all, right. The way to fight, it's just like, listen, do you really care? You know, if like, like, and this is one of the things where I, I I have this thought. Okay. So here's my second question to you guys, which is just like, okay. All we hear about from like centrist people is that like the left has all these radical people who are harming the left. Right. Like, you know, and to some degree, like maybe there's some truth to that, you know, like maybe there are some messages out there that are somewhat destructive. Right. Um, especially here in California, I'm thinking like, you know, like there are like sort of left messages that I might actually agree with and, and, but you like, you can't say it, right. Like, like I, and if you want to win in any type of election, like you can't say homeless encampments, for example, are fine. You know, right. <laughs> like you just can't say it. Like I'm sorry. Like I actually don't agree that they're fine. Like I think that people need shelter, locked door, and like you know uh, services and help. You know, like and that we should have a robust state around that. But like, you know, that is a very fringe but very loudly vocalized position on in some of the left, right? Which is just like don't you know people should have the right to live in homeless encampments. So like I don't disagree they should have the right doesn't mean that it's like good to have people dying of fentanyl overdoses all the time in these in these encampments right right? um and i think that there is a corollary to this on the right you know and i think this is it in some ways right like if you look at the stuff about like anti-crt stuff and whether people care about it the polls jamel wrote about this too um it's not like everybody on the republican side cares about crt in no, fact they no. overwhelmingly don't you know yeah. mm-hmm. and for something like this where like the homophobia is so rank you know mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's so in your face where they're doing stuff like targeting like gay like gay teachers of like middle school kids who like you know have, yeah. have, it's not it's like wild. they're pushing like a gay agenda on these kids they're just teachers who mention that they're gay you know or right. say my husband and like they're getting targeted I don't think that this is like a 
like I don't think that this is something that convinces, for example, like a, you know, mother in suburban, like the sort of mythical mother in suburban Pennsylvania who like, you know, can see both sides or something. Like, no way. There's right. no way that that person is like on board with uh, in 2022 is on board with like a crusade against like gay public school teachers. Right. <laughs> you know, like, I, I just don't believe it, you know? And so I think that there's some way in which this is like going to backfire in a way. I don't know. What do you guys think? You think it'll that? backfire? Yeah, because I think that one of the things that problems with the left is that like we have a certain myopia where we start to think that everything that the right does is ingenious, you know, right? and that is going to win every single election. And meanwhile, we have like we should acknowledge that we have like, you know, democratic control of like the House. Um, right. You know, but weren't and you just saying we have that a democratic should... president. But weren't you just saying Democrats have ignored this for too long and now they have to pay more attention to it? No, 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 no. What I'm, I, I'm just saying, I'm just, I'm just asking questions here, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying there's part of me that thinks they should fight it. And there's part of me that also oh, thinks see. that maybe we should just let them yeah. get as crazy and as like homophobic, right. like, you know, we shouldn't allow, but the problem of course here is that they're passing laws, right? If right, this was right, all right. discourse, really I would bad. say that, but like the, the laws, I agree that we have to fight, but I'm I mean, saying yeah. that I, I think there is a chance that this like ends up being mm. like a, being like I think it's I think it's pretty scary, but I so just like to again really quickly to the point of like well what it, what would it mean to actually win the culture war? It would be a real uh, strategy would again to attach this to like the Democrats with a package like universal childcare credit or the Democrats being the party of like public goods and and supporting the working class. The problem is they're not right now, and so I think they have to just play defense and just fight one one of these right. laws, each of these laws at a time. Talk about xenophobia and how it's wrong but they're mm. not going to actually replace it with an alternative vision of how you're going to get fed and take care of your children. Right. Like they don't have that. And that's a problem, you know? Right. In debate terms, like basically the Republican strategy <laughs> is to just run like 25 diss ads and like the affirmative just has to answer them all, you know, yeah, they're playing defense, not offense. Right. So it's always, risk of always <laughs> the affirmative, okay. the affirmative or the Democrats are always playing defense, which I, I, mm -hmm. I think is also, both an argument for and against what Jamal is saying is just like, okay, are we going to really play more defense at this point? You know, like uh, we, we played all this defense against this anti CRT stuff. And you said stuff like, Oh, it doesn't actually exist in schools, you know? Um, and uh, like, are we going to do that again? Is that the right strategy or not? Tammy, what do you think? I think Jamel is right to point out the legislation and you guys were just saying like that we should take all of those legal attacks quite seriously. But I do think that this campaign has a whiff of desperation about it. And By maybe it's because, yeah. yeah, and maybe it's because yeah. we can look back at the period that Melinda Cooper is looking at and think, oh, well, we survived that and we can, we have different ways of explaining it as a backlash to the 60s that is different and distinct from today. But I guess, like, just very, very anecdotally, I think, like, even in very conservative areas of the country where I've reported or, you know, talked to people, the the changes in family values and family structures is so widespread and has, has to be confronted by so many different types of people and has been confronted by so many different types of people that I, uh, to Jay, your, your point that you were just making, I really think that this actually isn't that attractive to as many people as the Republicans are hoping. And I just... I, yeah, I mean, I think. Yeah. I, I just, I just don't know how effective of a strategy it'll ultimately be. But they really only need a. Doesn't mean we don't have to take it seriously, though, right? <clears throat> right, but like they again, we're like all these elections come down to like the five percent in the middle, you know. Well, um, I don't know if that's true, but like I, but I, I don't know. I mean, if... 
I don't know if that's yeah. true necessarily. I mean, 10%. like the, the problem is that basically in places where like it's a state government issue, right? It's yes. not a federal issue. Mm-hmm. And so like um, in places like where there are, uh, you know, like, I mean, for example, so he, he gives up some he gives some examples here, right? Like and he says last year, Republicans in Michigan backed a bill that would slash school funding if educators taught, quote, critical race theory quote, anti-American ideas about race in the United States or material from the New York Times' 1619 project. Earlier this month, Ohio Republicans introduced a bill prohibiting any public uh, community or private school in the state from teaching, using, or providing any, quote, any, uh, um, any curriculum or instructional materials on sexual orientation or gender identity in kindergarten through third grade. Now, look, it should be said that these are bills that are introduced, right? Like, these are not... Um, sure. Right. These are not the laws, but this is clearly something that is happening. And Ron DeSantis is like the king of all of this in Florida. Right. right. And that he's trying to, they're trying to sort of, and that this should be seen, I think Jamel is correct as being a attack on public schooling. Right. And a sort of world in which everybody gets to choose what schools they have. Like there's tons and tons of yeah. charter schools, public schools are gutted. My last question to the both of you on this topic is this is something I think about all the time, which is that like, I, wonder and maybe it is just because i live in the east bay where oakland has the most charter schools per capita of any place in america right um it also has uh you know basically the people who go to charters are like there's no way to distinguish this as being like the haves and have-nots or white and minorities or anything like that like these are independent working class poor minority families latino black asian making an individual choice to not send their kids to Oakland Unified School District and to send them to any charter instead, right? And the reasons why they're doing it isn't because they hate teachers' unions, right? The reasons why they're doing it is because they feel that USD is a failure and that their kids are not going to be safe there or learn anything and that they would rather go to any random charter instead. This is true. You know, like, I mean, there's been a lot of reporting on it. There's a reason why there's more charter schools in there than anywhere else in the country. Like, we're not talking about, uh, you know, Gross Point, Michigan or something like that, like some wealthy, like, enclave of white people, right? Yeah. Um, and I wonder, right, like, if this is just kind of over, right? Like, like, maybe we can't save public schools in the way that we want to. Like, maybe we can't save charters. Uh, <laughs> we can't save teachers unions in the ways that we want to. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't fight for it, Right. But I think that there might be some sort of need to acknowledge like how big the hill is to climb at this point, right? Um, and how much anything that will sort of lead to more school choice is going to be wildly popular regardless of the of the basis of it. I don't know. What do you think? Tammy, what do you think? Like you're somebody who's thought about these labor <laughs> I mean, issues, that so. is so <laughs> Fuck you, that Andy. I just can't even go there. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, Jay, come on. Um I, I mean, I yeah, the history of charter schools is such that they've always made appeals to poor people of color who have felt left out of the public system. And I think that's like an ongoing challenge, obviously, to address. And that is like extremely hard to get over in a lot of places because, yeah, there is such a there's such a demonization of public schools. In some cases, public schools are having a really hard time. Right. Um, but that doesn't mean that charter schools are that much better. A lot of times the alternative actually is quite bad also. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that point just underscores the fact that we do need to fight these sorts of legislation because they do pose even marginal threats that can be destructive in places where we're already basically losing. Um, 
I mean, your, your question is so big, but basically I think like it's also incumbent upon people who do have a lot of choices to make good choices around public schools and that, you know, not to put it on individual choice, <laughs> which is sort of circuitous to what we're talking about. But, you know, I think, um, no, I don't think it's acceptable to say that we're losing and that we've lost and that we can't go back. I think there has to be a way to sort of reconstruct some of this. And what's Philly like? I mean, is there, is it a lot of charter schools? I mean, you're, you're at the age where you're probably thinking about where you're going to send your kids. Yeah, for sure. And like the conversations I have with friends who obviously care about their kids' education, but are, you know, left, left, left liberal or something. Uh, And there's basically a split between half of us. Basically there's like three or four good public schools. And if you're lucky in Philadelphia and all of like Philly proper, right. The city itself. And, Famously has really good suburban high schools, Lower Marion High School, where Cody right. went, right? It's like the right, sort right, of like right. poster child for suburban white flight. Um, and I totally don't blame a lot of my colleagues or other academics I know who live in the suburbs. It's cheaper, the schools are better, you know. Right. Um, and within the city itself, I think it's like either you pay a lot of money and you live in a more expensive place to get a good public school or you pay less money, live in a less expensive place, and then you take that savings and you put it into your private school education. And at that point, it's like, you know, tomato, tomato, as far as I'm concerned, it's like, it's the same, like, I don't, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't blame someone for living in a cheaper neighborhood just to, and then sending their kids to a private school. Right. It's like the same calculus. Right. Um, and I, I think a lot of the, a lot of the stuff is a reflection of just the gutting of the public education system and like the choices, like the choices that families have are not their choice. Right. It's like these are the choices that have been given to them yeah. by the situation. Um, and, I haven't studied this. I haven't studied this stuff super closely, but I would assume like it is dynamic. But you'd have to actually put money. Like then, the main variable would be how much money and resources are you going to put into the public education system. I think all this stuff in terms of like marketing and personal choice that'll flow as a secondary concern. But as if the public education system is robust and well funded, I just people would go. I think you know people would trust it. Um, the, I think the problem is just that it's so. Uh, such a patchwork, like in a place like Philly, that people really don't yeah. trust it. But there is conversations. Are there a lot of charter that, schools. I think there are, but I don't hear too much about them. Only okay. I hear about them here and there, but not uh, the overwhelming choice is like there's a lot of well, um, <clears throat> well-established private schools. The, the there's a Quaker school called the Friends School, it has just like three or four branches. A lot of people send their kids there. Um, but there is like conversations about as the city gentrifies schools that used to not be very good people are saying you know in a couple of generations they could be much better you know right right so this that's stuff is the, dynamic that's basically the subtext to all this like nice white parent stuff right which yeah. is that um <laughs> like the question is not whether white families in these cities are now going to try and make difficult choice to uh move to the suburbs or send their kids to private school or send their kids to their locally districted school as a way to um improve those schools and do their like thing for social justice right the actual question like that might be an individually felt choice right but the actual the actual dynamic is that there are a lot of middle class families who are white with professional parents who are who stayed in these cities whereas before they would have all moved out to the suburbs at some point and so they have to make a choice and they also aren't rich enough to send their kids to these hyper expensive private schools in these cities right and so they do have to make a choice right like do they like they can't afford to move to park slope and send their kid to 321 right like and so um you know like they might live in 
you know, the part of Crown Heights that I used to live in, for example, right? And like the place where George Packer fam- famously also lived. <laughs> they might have to make like the choice that George Packer decided to write like a 9,000 word essay about, right? And he ended up sending his kid, I think, to uh, like a science and math sort of STEM school or something like that, right? Um, like that, that sort of stuff. I don't know. Like it's, it. I find it as I've gotten older and like this is obviously just like me, you know, becoming lame in some ways. I've just found it much harder to blame individual parents, like put any of the onus on any of this on individual parents making choices because like the sort of idea that these are like, you know, the only choice that matters. And I think that, you know, this has been the framing for years now that like the framing has to be on like wealthy white parents making decisions to harm everything. Like that's a really bad that, framing, I think. Like I think it's could, a really bad framing. And that but, is Betsy DeVos's framing. Like it's your choice, you know. Like it's the right, right wings, the rights framing. I think that just you're not getting older, you're becoming more structuralist, which is the correct way of looking at the world. <laughs> yeah, that's why I didn't want to say. T- I don't want to say that it is only a matter of choice, but I also am not ready to completely discount people's responsibility in making these choices. Part of every child that you pull out of the public schools also, that's like a funding choice that you're making about where to put your money in the system. It's also then about like putting a discourse into the environment around you that public schools aren't good enough for your kids and that you're going to opt out. So they're, you know, yeah, yes, it's structural, but also like we are part of the structure. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I I agree with that. There's like a, I wouldn't, I could, there are, there's like a kind of parent you would judge. Uh, seriously, I guess the question is like, where, what's the line for okay. each yeah. of us? And we might, we might have like a looser line, you know? Sure. Than, and I don't, you know, I'm not a breeder, so I don't know. But I'm just <laughs> like, from my non breeding <laughs> standpoint, <laughs> I do have to say, like, yeah. I've, you know, there, are, yeah. I've seen principal specifically people make some very as sketchy a breeder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Tammy, you're <laughs> out of this conversation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we did have listener questions that I'm, were like, we want to hear I'm, more about parenting. Sorry, Tammy. I'm, <laughs> I'm cutting you off after one minute as a non-breeder. Exactly. You have no input in this. Um, yeah. We, uh, yeah, I, Tammy, I agree with you, but I think that what Andy said is correct, which is like, all right, where do you draw the line? Do you only talk about sure. white parents making a decision? Because that seems bad. You know, there's a lot of middle-class black families. There are a lot of middle-class Latino families and right. Asian families that make similar sure. choices, right? And it, a place like Oakland, like their choices matter much, 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 much more and the very small amount of white families in in the city of Oakland that are sending their kids to any type of public school, whether um, charter or not, you know, and I don't know, I, I do, I do sometimes wonder, though, if it is, if my, I mean, I don't even live in Oakland, right? Like, I don't think that we have a charter school here in Berkeley, everyone sends their kids to Berkeley Unified School District, it's all bust. So you don't get a choice really on where your kid goes. And as a result, Nobody really like I've never I I will say this. I have never. And this is so weird. Andy, imagine imagine this world, you know, (laughs) imagine a world where you all your friends are all the people that, you know, have four year olds. Right. And there's zero conversation about what elementary public elementary school is good and what public elementary school is bad. You know, there's zero conversation about I've never had that conversation because everybody agrees they're all the same. The only thing that yeah. people talk about is whether one is annoying to get to or not because of like the yeah. very mild amount of traffic. It sounds great, you know. <laughs> yeah, like, like yeah. 
I don't know about like your experience, Tammy, but like growing up in the Washington state suburbs, the private school was just seen as like this crazy elitist exclusive thing. And we just assumed that all the schools were about the same. And so that's why it's weird to come to the East coast and hear about like magnets and charters and private options Agreed. and, and yeah. not seeing them as weird. Um, and then you look back like, Oh, living up in the, living in the suburbs of Seattle is actually a privileged existence, you know, that where every school is basically well-funded and, even if the schools aren't good, you know, you'll get what you need, you know, if you want, if you, yeah. if you, and all that stuff. So, uh, and that, that is, that is socialism. You know, that is the utopia that you're, that, that an advanced society should aim towards. Well, that's the other question I have, which is that like, uh, you know, like charters are in some, some cities, but they're not in a lot, right? Like Scarsdale, New York, for example, doesn't have, it's not like they have like some robust charter school system, right? I, I imagine that's <laughs> not true. You don't need to. Right. Yeah. And so there are a lot of places where, you know, people are going to be like, we're going to cut public school funding and we're going to replace it with charters. And people are like, no, you're not. (laughs) Like, I'm perfectly happy with my public school, which is actually a bipartisan thing. Like all those polls came out. Jessica Gross wrote about it in The Times where she's just like, it seems like most people are happy with their kids' schools, you know? And so, like, what is all of this thing? You know, well, it's like an idea, like, you know, the answer is, I think Jamel is correct. It's an ideological thing, right? Like, yeah. and um, it like people like Christopher Rufo just hate the idea, I think, of public schools, period. And they want to sort of foment a type of right. charter for, pro- you know, not, for, you know, whatever, like nonprofit or whatever, like a uh, privately run type of revolution in schooling. But, you know, what's interesting about it is that I, again, I don't know how popular that's going to be outside of these places where there are a lot of charter schools, which I'm sorry are mostly democratic, <laughs> you know, like, they, yeah. we don't like need Oakland. Rufo to have charter schools. That's like the thing. Obama right. was the number one fan of that. Yeah. They're super neoliberal. Like, 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 like Oakland is going to be like, Oh yeah. You know, this like Chris Rufo guy has a lot of, uh, I'm going to start voting for Donald Trump because I don't want to send my kid to OUSD. <laughs> like that's not a thing, you know, it's yeah. like not a, it's not a thing. Now it could be a thing in like a place like Louisiana, right. In New Orleans or something like that. But like, I don't know. I just, I have a very hard time understanding what 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 the end game is here but i do agree that we should fight against it because it's really bad when these laws are passed you know like i mean like these are bad laws you know like um and um yeah my actually this is my actual last question for it which is that like the one thought i had was like look i think we here on the left do sometimes make these moves towards saying okay it's not just about the culture war being good or bad it's actually about the economy this is like andy's view from the ivory tower right mm-hmm. but sometimes i think that you just have to be like no actually you're just a homophobe and this is homophobic and for sure. it's wrong you know for sure so like i don't know what do you think about that like you know is that the way to actually fight the culture war where it's just like no like you're being racist or you're being a bigot you know and people shouldn't be bigots because people do emotionally respond to that you know yeah, yeah should we just bring up these should there just be like endless videos of these teachers who are now being like targeted and harassed and they're just like you know the most perfectly kind person like i don't know one of the people on lives of tiktok like reminded me so much of like my kids teachers that it was like it made me furious you know because these are these are not like groomer right. like the, like right. i mean i don't even have to justify that part it's not like these are ideologues. They're just nice people who like want to, you know, make kids like love one another. And it's like, it's disgusting the attacks that they're receiving now, you know? So like, is it more, is it, would it be easier just to say, no, actually, instead of this sort of way move to make it about public goods and services that actually we should just say like, 
you know, we should be like at the Krasensteins yelling at Trump and just be like, <laughs> sir, you are a bigot. You know? <laughs> what do you think? I mean, I think unless the Democrats actually back up any of this stuff with robust social welfare or anything, that this is just whack-a-mole. You know, the Republicans are just, right. you know, poking at the fact that the Democrats don't have a, actually have a vision for anything. Um, and yeah, like obviously they should respond to these horrible laws as they come up, but un- I don't think the re- Republicans or the right are going to stop unless the Democrats or the left, the left trying to overtake the Democrats, um, credibly offer a different vision of the government taking care of you. Um, otherwise it makes for, it makes it very tempting to just say, uh, nobody is taking care of you. And then you have these unproductive parasites, this, like this, you know, this, this racial group that has a culture of poverty or this sexual group that is, that betrays the family and so on. Like the, the, what they're really poking at is like the sense that, uh, you have to take care of yourself. And these groups are like siphoning off from you and your family. I think, I mean, like that, that defensive strategy, we saw how it works, you know, in 2016, It, it doesn't really work. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. Tim, what do you think? Do you think we should just Yeah, but I think this is, I mean, I think that that does need to be articulated because I think it's the Republicans strategy does try to disrupt all of the public goods we have, but that doesn't mean that the people who are receptive to that strategy are like hard scrabble. Like some people who, right, who are receptive are just do in fact hate these groups. And I actually think Jamel's op-ed is a very good sort of outline of talking points that Democrats could literally use pretty much verbatim to respond to some like of this what? to say, sorry. Like what? Sorry. Oh, no. For them to literally say like, yeah, this strategy being used in my district is homophobic and, you know, racist, but also it's meant to destroy our public schools. Yeah. And yeah. here are teachers and family members who really care about this, you know, care about each other and we should try to you know, have people in, you know, we need to support these schools, not destroy these schools. Like, I don't. But the Democrats yeah, to clarify, I don't. Really uh, yeah, I, I, I should clarify what I said. I don't think Jamal well, is saying that I we should, like, we shouldn't fight it morally either, you know? No, I know. Um, I think he is yeah, per- yeah. basically, I think he's saying that people are probably more likely to pick on the identitarian thing and not pick on the public goods piece. But he's right. basically offering a sort of, you know, way to do both. I mean, yeah, Andy, to your point, like, yeah, we obviously need more Democrats to be able to say that, but yeah, right. I, 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 I think Manchin, that would be an ideal situation if they could, if they would be. Able I to think Manchin that. taking Build Back Better, and maybe that's just scapegoating one guy, is just like so bad. That was yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, it's terrible. But it, I mean, the the schools thing though is much more like localized. I also so it's, just a, it's think, a bit of a different yeah. calculus, yeah. Right, you right, know. Right. Yeah, and I think that at some level people should do this, but. In the end, you know, people are mad because they can't buy a house, you know, and gas prices are high. And, um, you know, I don't know what to do about inflation. <laughs> I don't know what the response should I be mean, about inflation. This is like Cooper's know? Cooper's argument is like in the 70s, right. there's also inflation and oil shocks. And they were able to portray like black and gay groups as like like inflation. They were like this unproductive burden on the economy and if we roll back welfare if we do austerity that would solve inflation so right, i think right, right. this is all of a piece right right yeah yeah it's uh it's all like very bad timing and i don't know i feel like a decent amount of despair these days about it because <laughs> i just don't know what there is to do about it 
know, right like on. I can say, you know, we can be like, well, this piece doesn't have any prescriptions in it, even though I think it does, you know. But then I'm just like, well, what are my prescriptions for? I was like, I don't know. You know, that's not my job. It's tough. You know, I didn't actually like dig into this deeper, but I would just like from a very cursory read of the coverage, I do think um, in taking and talking about Rufo, a good start would be like taking Rufo's ideas more seriously, not to, again, give him validity, but to be like, is this just a simple scapegoat theory or is there like a... right? You know, right. like, what is he actually saying? And, you know, like at the beginning of COVID, um, I think I mentioned like to- Toby Chow, right, of Justice is Global. He said, like, pay attention to what Tucker Carlson is saying because it's, it's you know, it's horrible, but it's also like mm-hmm. 90, like 10% persuasive and plausible. And a lot, and like the stuff he was saying about China kind of is like t- what Tim Ryan is saying now about China, you know? So, like, right. paying attention to taking the right more seriously than just um, they're using this culture thing to distract you from the economic thing i think it would be a good start to kind of take it more seriously than that right and he's uh yeah i mean i i think uh yeah or like just i don't know sometimes i also just think maybe we give these people too much oxygen you know um yeah for sure and and that uh, there is a, I, you know, who is this guy in the end, right? He's <laughs> publishing in City Journal, right? And he's traveling around. But I don't know. At Chris this point, that, that cat's out. Yeah, that cat's yeah. out of the bag. You know, like yeah. we, like he's going to be a centerpiece in, in all of this. And I agree with you, Andy. I think that like sort of with the CRT stuff, the thing that frustrated me the most was that like the response was so deflective. It was always just like, well... CRT doesn't exist in schools, you know, right. what are you talking about? It doesn't exist in schools or like, or like people would say stuff like, oh, well, you know, um, like, uh, that, like the stuff about how, like, um, like the, all the sort of problematic DEI stuff that was coming out, right. Like that, where people are like, nobody actually thinks that this stuff is good. Right. Like stuff saying like, oh, well, punctuality is like white supremacy or something like that. Right. And then you find out actually it's taught in like, hundreds or thousands of schools you know and then you're like yeah 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 i mean some of this stuff is pretty widespread and so then you just say all right well we can't defend that right (laughs) (laughs) and so what do you do well you just have to keep deflecting and say well it's only 10 minutes a day you know of a day and you're just like okay or like you know like parents (laughs) just like all right like we're kind of painting ourselves in a corner here you know by basically saying this thing doesn't exist and then the choice becomes, well, should we repudiate this stuff, right? And this is where, like, my thought of, like, where it was so fun. Like, I had people are starting to say, like, we should sister soldier Ibram X. Kendi or something Oh, yeah, that's like right. That. <laughs> <laughs> you remember that moment, right? And it's like, that's where all the sister soldier sort of talk comes in where people are just like, oh, well, you need to, like, burn anti-racist behaviors. And I'm just like, okay, like, clearly no, <laughs> you know, like, that's not a good option either. And so that's where the despair comes in, because it's just like, I don't know, there's, there is like a, you know, like, I think that basically what has happened is that um, there are tiny pockets of mostly education, curriculum stuff, and, you know, it's where it's just like, some of the stuff that is put out is kind of untenable, right? And most 99% of people are just going to kind of roll their eyes or at least, or, or, and a lot will be offended by it. And that the right has just gotten very good at finding these things and pointing to them and, 
forcing yeah. the left on or Democrats on into the perpetual defensive on culture war issues. When in fact, it might be interesting to just say that critical race theory should be taught in schools, right? <laughs> um, Derek Bell but, should be taught in elementary right. schools. Right. I mean, I don't yeah. think that that's, I don't think that's wrong. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I think it would be cool if critical race theory was taught in schools, right? You don't have to say this is doctrinaire and this is like the only thing you can believe, right? Yeah. But what's wrong with teaching that? You know, like teach all sorts of stuff in Give school, like right? Middle schoolers are thick readers. But um, but I don't know why I don't know why there's such defensiveness about it, except that people are so afraid of like a enraged white suburban voter that like yeah. they're going to always capitulate to like basically saying everything's fine. Everything's fine. I do think know? there is also I don't know, this is giving too much credit to the right, a sort of um, galaxy brain strategy of making of doing things like 1776 project and then getting everyone's so like caught up in 1776 project which is not like a thing like it's not serious but like all all this energy is being wasted on this instead of you know build back better yeah 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 i mean i guess maybe that's true maybe maybe you know but i don't know they also i don't know it's still annoying when they do it yeah you know like sure maybe Take if we had fewer Kata- breeders, maybe this wouldn't be as big of an issue. I know. Well, at that point, all right. Next we had... subject. <laughs> we're talking about breeders. Okay, what's the next subject? Just what's kidding. the last subject we're talking about? Um, <laughs> well, Andy was going to give an update on the lockdown in Shanghai. Yeah, oh, yeah. a listener had asked about this, and you know, I'm not an ex- I'm not an expert or anything. I just like read up on it a little bit. But what seems to be happening is for several weeks now, there's been a lockdown in Shanghai to stop the spread of COVID. Uh, it seems like Beijing might also getting prepared for doing something similar and the reason this is notable is that it doesn't seem to be going well and a lot of people in china i think have reached a breaking point with the zero COVID policy that was implemented in 2020 for alpha not for omicron for the unvaccinated population not the vaccinated population so i think there's beginning to be questions about like should we keep doing this COVID zero thing which you know the ccp has prided itself on since 2020 um but they're doing things in shanghai like if you're if you test positive, you have to like quarantine in this like designated space in the government, a government space or buildings that have COVID or have like physically have gates built around the building so people can't come in or go out. Wow. Um, in theory, you know, everyone nobody's supposed to leave their department uh, apartment or house, but have food and supplies delivered. But lots of complaints about how they haven't had food or anything delivered, and people are just like going crazy, like staying in their apartment, not even not even being able to go for walks. Um, the, you know, the articles I was reading were quoting people from, you know, Weibo, their Twitter saying like, what is this? Where are our rights? Um, like uh, they, they have no respect for citizens and so on. So I think there is this speculation that the citizenry is no longer on board with COVID zero. Um, mm-hmm. I was talking to someone this weekend who uh, has family in Shanghai and, sh- and, and was like, you know, watching from afar. And she was speculating that she was kind of, wondering or hoping you know a few weeks ago that xi jinping and the ccp might be beginning to pivot because i like objectively this is kind of crazy to keep doing covid zero right right? but you know for appearance sake i'm not going to say face for appearance sake they have to like keep it up right (laughs) why because you don't want to like racialize yourself (laughs) (laughs) to save face face. yeah um (laughs) In, yeah, in, in their culture, it's important to save face. Uh, so they 
have to like stick with COVID <laughs> yeah. zero, right? Um, They're going but, to Confucianism. <laughs> the uh, number zero the is very important. Yeah, exactly. The oh, wow. Elon Musk just bought Twitter. Oh, fuck. Yeah. So really, yeah. okay, we can talk about it in a second, but really quickly, there was speculation that in, in their speeches, they were beginning to draw these analogies with what's going on in Europe and the US, potentially paving the way to be like, just like the rest of the world, you know, Omicron isn't that deadly. If the, most of the population is vaccinated, maybe we could ease some of these restrictions and so on. So there is speculation there. And this is, you know, just like Kremlin watchers, like kind of reading between the lines of these official statements. No one really knows what mm-hmm. the intelligence is. So someone also told me you know, this weekend that, and this is how I get my news, not from actually reading anything, but someone told me informally, like Hong Kong, even though it was going through this horrible stuff recently, has actually begun to very slowly open up. Um, so, And I've heard for a while, like Taiwan is going to feel pressure to open up or shorten its quarantine. I do think this initial yeah. strategy of East Asia, which was effective at the beginning to go COVID zero against Alpha is, I think governments are realizing like it's not tenable to do COVID zero forever. This is an endemic pandemic at this point. Um, and maybe these governments are going to slowly talk themselves into loosening in the future. But um, I think COVID zero seems like objectively not a good idea anymore, but the CCP has to kind of figure out a way you know, yeah. to make it work for their timeline. So totally. that's, the, that's the update. But yeah, like the case is... Shout th- out to Vince from our Discord who is oh, yeah. in the Shanghai lockdown with his family. Oh, has he... Has he... Yeah, I should have. Yeah, sorry. I haven't is activated. He, what, is that's he, okay. Like, going well, for, a few weeks he, ago, he gave us an update in the Discord just about how he and his entire family were getting a ninth COVID test and they'd been mm-hmm. locked already locked in their apartment for like two and a half weeks. Oh, my God. Yeah. Same thing of just this experience of looking at the CCP double down uh-huh. on a strategy that's making everyone miserable and right. wondering how they're going to get their groceries. <laughs> you know, right. so, Which um, raises questions about, again, yeah. like legitimacy. Is the CCP totally. responsive? Exactly. Even though it's not a democracy. Um, the last, like the report I've read that said there's hundreds of thousands of cases in Shanghai, but like less than a hundred deaths, which is bad, you know, but still right. like, you know, it's not alpha. It's not the original yeah. outbreak. So, you know, that's that's something to keep your eye on. And, you know, like sympathy or solidarity with the I know with the people suffering. So hard. Yeah, I mean Korea doesn't have a quarantine anymore for travelers, which was interesting because the Omicron oh, really? has been quite deadly there. You okay. know, and so it was it's yeah, I mean, it, it obviously it's also going through a, a time of presidential transition and stuff. So there's just a lot of question marks there too, where everyone sort of understood that this wave of the disease was incredibly horrible for the population and like a certain actually like a large proportion of the deaths so far in the pandemic are from Omicron, which is terrifying. Wow. Yeah. And yet the government was kind of like, at the same time, this is sort of, we need yeah. to just, we can't do this forever. And so the it's, new, did the new president, Yeah. Did the new president run on this platform that uh, like COVID was socially destructive and we have to go back to normal? You know, it's interesting. I mean, it does. It wasn't as big of a campaign issue as I thought it was going to be. Um, he's going to be inaugurated next month. I mean, I think there was implications. You know, the kind of usual conservative line, like he would be more business friendly, and the libs went too hard. You know, on business right. during COVID and this sort of thing. We're going to be friendly with China and stuff, but it wasn't sort of specifically like they did a terrible job on COVID. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. It's, it is this kind of anachronism of this twenty twenty policy. That is living on yeah. 2022 with a different variant. Wow. Um, what's the latest on Elon? Oh, he just, I guess he bought it. Okay. He bought it. So, so our podcast now. has gone full circle now. We okay. So we are updated for tomorrow. Yeah, we are updated. <laughs> right. He has bought it. 
Although I don't think, oh, I gosh. think we all assumed he was going to buy it. Yeah, right. that's what the reports were yeah. saying. It's Based like, on Matt Levine. That is the end of our show. Thanks for listening. Um, if you'd like to support us, you can go to goodbye.substack.com. It's $5 a month. You get access to our uh, Discord channel and you get all of our episodes. You get like a nice email from us. I don't know. It helps. It helps. Can you hear like the, all the scraping going on in the background? I heard a car horn honking. No, no. There's no car horn. It's oh, just a lot Okay, I'm being distracted by it. Anyway, if you'd like to contact us, email us at right, time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or reach us at ttsgpod on Twitter. Um, thank you. Our new, wait, wait, wait I got to say our new theme music is who? Oh, I don't know. If we, yeah. I don't know if Lance should. Wants us to say dox him and say his full name, but Discord user Lance is responsible for our new theme. It's like that's him singing. It's not me singing. It's not Andy. <laughs> definitely not Tammy. Right. Definitely not me. Um, so if you want a sense of how great our community is, and it is great, you know, it's the greatest community. So yeah, we had this fantasy line. Fantasy league. Yeah, yeah. And I think it was a joke that whoever loses the fantasy league has to do five minutes of stand up. But Lance, because he's a mensch, actually went through with it and gave a killer five minute set. Uh, a lot of puns. Uh, and then a lot of like, uh, yeah, NBA jokes. No, 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 like, oh, wait, that's what I was going to ask amazing you person. about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. We'll talk about that later. Wait, can we talk about that when your awesome. piece comes out? Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Know, we should all Venmo you $100, but that should not have been free. Drop the cash app, Lance. <laughs> that was the punishment for, for the league. Um, um, Lance needs to win. Italy, I thank you for your service. Lance needs to lose everything.